You're listening to Biz Ninja Entrepreneur Radio. This show was created for entrepreneurs, business owners, marketers, and dreamers who want to learn from the experts of today and drastically shortcut their own success to build a business that supports their dream lifestyle. Since 2011, Tyler Jorgensen has been interviewing business thought leaders from around the world. A serial entrepreneur himself, Tyler also shares his personal insights into what's working in business today. Welcome to Biz Ninja Entrepreneur Radio. Welcome out to Biz Ninja Entrepreneur Radio. I'm your host, Tyler Jorgensen, and today we have Howard Tierski, who is the CEO of From, the Digital Transformation Agency, and the author of Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. And I'm really excited to talk about that just because that sounds amazing. He's also the host of the Winning Digital Customers podcast. Uh, and one of the funniest guys in podcasts is what I'm hearing. But so welcome <laughs> now, out to now. the show. Super glad to have you here, Howard. Well, thank you so much for having me, Tyler. I'll try to be funny. <laughs> um, I love to start the show with a very like Genesis question, right? When was the moment that you first realized that you were an entrepreneur? You know, I was probably after I was sort of running my business for about eight years, something like that. <laughs> and so that's so fascinating. I've been talking, I've been doing this question a long time, and some it's one or the other. It's either, oh, I knew when I was a, I knew when I was five, right, or oh, you know what? I started, I became a professional and then I started my own company. And then I realized I was, you know, it was kind of like the other way. So yeah, uh, walk us through your journey a little bit. I mean, you were running a company for a, for quite a while before. Uh, and have you always been in the digital space or kind of give us your background a bit? I have been uh, in the digital space for pretty much my entire professional career. Um, I started off doing digital design work uh, before there was a lot of interactive Type digital work, and uh, then I was doing in the early days things like CD-ROMs uh, and and other kinds of interactive touchscreen kiosk experiences, things like that. Before we really had a commercialized internet, and so I was sort of there at the beginning when when companies started to need to put their first website live and start to build e-commerce capabilities. Before there was a ton of consumer adoption, and I've been doing it well, you know, ever since. So I've been on that wow. journey for for decades now, and uh, yeah, I think you know. If you'd have asked me, I, I didn't really identify with the idea of being an entrepreneur. <laughs> I didn't set out to say I want to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to create great customer experiences. I wanted to utilize technology to build business. Like, like I was focused on the sort of art, if you will, of the outcome I was trying to get to. And so for me, becoming an entrepreneur was just a means to an end. It wasn't like I'm someone who says, Oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. Now, what kind of business should I go into? Not at all. I was in this space because I was actually doing the same kind of work for a large consulting company. So the first 15 years of my career, I was working with Ernst Young. And then Ernst Young Consulting's practice got bought by Capgemini. So I sort of wound up being with a couple of companies. But it was really one sort of continuous employment, if right. you will, doing work, uh, being brought into... I mean, what's amazing about you work for a giant company like that is you get access to all kinds of Fortune 1000 brands who need help. And you're sort of there. You're, they're your clients already. Right. So I had a tremendous opportunity, a tremendous schooling in in uh, in a time when there were no experts because the digital world was being invented as we went along. So there was no yeah, one who could come along and said, "I have ten years experience." If I, if I had six months experience in in 1994, someone's like, "My God, how did you get so much experience?" Yeah, because right. 
<laughs> it was all brand new. So, um, so I, you know, I, I wound up working for just, just scores and scores of large companies, helping them consider how digital impacted their business and what they should do and what steps they should take and helping them with that. And so that was really my, my, my journey of learning. And after 15 or so years working in that environment, uh, I, I had some goals that made it make more sense to me to continue to do what I was doing as an independent company rather than as part of a large global company. Yep. But it was really a continuation of the, the mission that I was on. It was not about my mission is to become Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I mean, I, I think that's really common from someone who comes from more of an art perspective. Like you said, you wanted uh, to create great customer experiences. You were attached to the, the, the art of the outcome, right? You really just wanted to create something, which at its heart is the heart of an entrepreneur. They see a better way to do something. And uh, and I think sometimes we think that the only way to be an entrepreneur is to be a business owner. I, I disagree. I think sometimes entrepreneurs are intrapreneurs. They work within a company. Um, and you got to a... It sounds like you hit a fork in the road where the only natural next step was for you to take that art into the point of and do it under your own agency and consulting firm. And um, what was this? What was the scariest part about going out on your own when you first made that leap? You know. Um... I didn't really find anything scary about it, to be honest, um, because at my well, my wife found it scary. There you go. <laughs> that, that I'm like, it's got to be there somewhere. Somebody in that equation, yeah. was terrified. So, I mean, for me, my mindset was like, okay, look, I've been working for big companies for a long time. I left with one client. When I left, I knew I had one initial project, one six week project. Right, that was you know, 14 years ago. So it certainly was no guarantee of an of a successful business. But I also knew that. It didn't work out. I knew that I could knock back on the door of any one of the company sure. that I left or any one of a dozen competitors, and I'd probably get a job pretty quickly. So I really didn't feel like I was risking all that much. And what's cool about the kind, of business, the kind of business that I'm in doing, you know, being a digital agency, providing consulting services requires very little capital. So it's not like I invested $10 million in building a factory and then, uh-oh, what if this work out? Absolutely. You know, it was just me and selling some projects and then hiring some people to do those projects with knowing the client's going to pay and the money's going to come back so I can pay the people. And so that's, you know, the, the downside of the kind of business that I'm in is that it, all, it scales very linearly, right? If I want to make 10 times more revenue, I probably have to hire nearly 10 times more people based on this kind of a service business model. Whereas if you're a software company, you can hire 10 people. And if you build an app that a million people want, you can 10x your revenue without substantially increasing the cost at all, essentially. Right. So the downside of my business is that you, you can't you scale linearly. The upside of my business is that you can start at zero and you can scale at whatever rate you want. And you don't right. have to put a whole bunch of money into building something, hoping that it will be successful. You can just yeah. invest as you go and kind of bootstrap it. And that's really what I did. Agencies are really fascinating that in that way is that their margins aren't a high it's not a high margin business but it's a very uh scalable business in terms of you don't have to make huge leaps in infrastructure and other costs. Um now I'm going to we're going to fast forward a little bit through that 15 year journey to becoming a Wall Street Journal bestseller with winning digital customers the antidote to irrelevance. Uh before we go into the book why why did we decide that now is the time to write a book? You know, I, I guess I would say for two reasons. And, and one of them is maybe the more cliche, you know, I just, I felt like I had a lot of content. I'd written a lot of articles, many hundred plus articles. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, sharing what, I, what I'd learned. You know, I, 
through my career, because I've worked with so many companies on so many projects, you start to see patterns over time, start to learn yeah. what works, what doesn't work. So, you know, I was really um, uh, enthusiastic about creating something. It goes back to that artist in me, I guess, again, you know, creating something that would really, really help people. Because, of course, the percentage of the world that are my clients is tiny compared to all the people that are trying to undergo digital transformation. So I was enthusiastic about making that contribution. But I'll also be frank and say that, you know, in my business, I have to prioritize everything I do. There are a lot of things that I would like to do that might seem fun and fulfilling. But if they don't make sense from a business perspective, unless they're really, really fun, <laughs> um, they probably don't happen. And I'll be, you know, frank, writing a book is fun, but it's not that compared right. to, say, taking a cruise, you know? Right. It's so, probably fun to um, say it's completed. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, uh, so you know, I also really felt it fit into my business. I mean, in my business, one of the things it can be difficult to differentiate when you're a digital agency because there's a lot of digital agencies, and you know, we're a hundred-person company. We're not one of the top five scale size-wise. I'd like to say we're one of the top five best, but you know, in all seriousness, I mean, I mean, we compete in a landscape of I don't know hundreds and hundreds of companies of our size, probably. And so, how do you break through? And 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 that's difficult because. A lot of companies say a lot of the same things about themselves. And sure. a lot of companies have won awards and work with big clients and all that kind of stuff like, like we have. But I felt that a book and really positioning myself as more of an industry thought leader made sense from a business perspective. So, you know, a big part of the strategy was to be perfectly transparent, write a book, but not just write a book, write a Wall Street Journal bestselling book yeah. and get that, you know, get that level of, you know, get people talking about the book and writing reviews of the book. and. And now all of a sudden, I have more external validation. So when someone says, well, why should we hire these guys? Part of it is, well, you know, they kind of wrote the book on digital transformation. Right. And not just a book, because these days, anybody can publish a book on Amazon, sure. you know, but a book that has been widely acknowledged and recognized as being somewhat authoritative. I'd never claim my book is like the ultimate book, only because obviously, there's many great books on the topic. But, uh, you know, if, if you're one of the key leading books in the space, then I think that gives you an edge when you're trying yeah. to convince somebody that they should leverage your expertise for their digital transformation versus any one of the 20 other companies that, you know, could also... That makes perfect it. sense. Uh, so the book covers, like, why every business that is serving digital customers, right, things that they need to know. Um, mm -hmm. And... You know, on your sales page, you have three things that I really want to address. I hope we can, we have a little bit of time to go into each one. One is why legacy brands fail. I think this is fascinating. Um, and then the other one is the the one that I want to go to first: the secret formula, which I love. Anything that like secret driven, right? The the three primary factors that earn your customers love and loyalty. I think loyalty is such a hot topic, and I, especially in today's shopping landscape, where customer loyalty isn't like people will switch brands a lot faster than they would 20 years ago. 20 years ago, if somebody was a, a, a Coke lover, they were a Coke lover, that's all they bought. And today they'll buy whatever is on sale, right? So things are changing. It's a shifting landscape there. So talk to us about those three factors um, that earn customers love and loyalty. Uh, well, you know, I, I would say people are very loyal to some brand. And in some categories, there's a tendency for more loyalty and less than others. Um, I can't really speak to the soft drink example that you gave, but I can tell you that, um, you know, there are people who, you know, you could only pry their Mac out of their cold, dead hands, right? And tell them they were switching to the seat, right? There are people who love Disney and they, it's like a part of their identity that they dress up as Disney characters and they go to Disney, whatever. You know, there are people who would never wear a non-Nike 
um, you know, athletic shoes. So there's no question that people who drive a Harley sure. Davidson motorcycle would never switch to a Honda, even if it were, you know, on sale, right? Makes so sense. there's no question that there are certain brands that get a lot of loyalty and love. And there are other categories, like let's say banking, or where, where very few people have a feeling of true loyalty towards the, the brand that they do business with. And you could find that in many areas. Yep. So I agree with you that there's no question that many, many brands do not really earn true love from their customers. And those that do, you can see spectacular results. I mean, look at Apple, 500% increase in their stock price over five years. Look at Disney, able to launch Disney Plus, a new streaming service that be half the size of Netflix, paid subscribers in three months after they launched that service. This is what you can do when you're a brand that is so loved by your customers. Because of that, one of the things that I've been doing for many years is talking to my clients about the importance of customer love. And then, of course, it begs the question, well, how do you get it? And like you say, what's what's the secret, right? So I see the right. Russell Brunson books. I think that's what that is on the it is, uh, good eye. behind you, right? Yep. So, you know, so, you know, there's a great marketer. What's the secret, right? So, absolutely. you know, I, I don't know if it's really a secret, but, um, you know, this is, I've spent many years with my team trying to do something in the love domain that may sound relatively not very romantic, which is how do we reverse engineer love? What are the components that actually trigger love in the customer? Because, of course, love can seem this kind of ephemeral, spiritual thing that defies understanding. But in fact, I think that's, that's not true. Um, so what we've really figured out is that there are three components that generate or inspire love, or at least create a very fertile ground for a customer to feel that feeling of love. And when we say love, by the way, you know, the word love can mean a lot of things in the English sure. language. Right. You know, I love my wife and I love Starbucks, but, you know, not in the same way. Right. Correct. So um, there's my first joke. Of life. <laughs> Good job. Killing it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but um, but uh, so in this case, you know, we mean it like when people say they love Starbucks, you know, when people have that strong emotional connection. So here's the three things. The first foundation of that pyramid is you have to meet their needs extremely consistently. That's not enough to make someone love you or make a, make someone love your brand. But if you're not consistently meeting their needs in the domain that your brand makes a promise around, whether you're a plumber or a bakery or a you know, surgeon, whatever, if you're not consistently meeting their needs, you're not going to get love. But it's not sufficient. So then the second level is to periodically or occasionally delight the person to exceed their needs and expectations. And then that tends to make customers like you. If you meet their needs consistently, but sometimes do something extra, that often makes customers like, but probably not enough to generate true emotional love because you need the third ingredient. And the third ingredient is to stand for something that the customer also cares about. Whether that's someone like a Nike standing up with Black Lives Matter and Colin Kaepernick, which is a highly political statement, or it's just someone like Apple really standing for something in terms of helping people unleash their creativity or someone like Ben and Jerry caring about nature and environmentalism. So, you know, the brands that are the most successful, like, like a Disney, they, they stand, even Walmart, massively successful brand. People love Walmart, not everybody, of course, but no brand is loved by everyone. Of but course. for the people that love Walmart, it's because they love what they stand for. Whereas it's hard to find people who love city. It's hard for people to find people who love America. It doesn't mean that they don't patronize. It right. just means they don't care that much about it. And so that's the recipe. And, and I would add one more maybe angle on that, which is sometimes people are trying to figure out, like, well, why? Why does that rescue? Why is it those three things that inspire love? And the answer is because love comes from meaning. 
if I give someone flowers and that makes them love me more, it's not because there's something in rose petals. There's not a chemical in rose petals. Right. Again, it's not the flowers. It's the meaning of the flowers. In fact, the meaning could be seen differently in a given situation. Maybe I give someone flowers and they think I'm trying to manipulate them, right? In that case, it doesn't make them love me. So the question is, when you do these three things for your customer, meet their needs, occasionally delight them, and stand for something that they believe in as well, what is the meaning the customer creates? And think about it this way. When I consistently meet your needs, well, of course, it makes sense that I'm trying to do that because I'm business and I want your right. money. So the fact that I'm trying to do that isn't impressing anybody. But when I do do it, it shows that I understand. I get you. Because if I didn't get you, I wouldn't be able to meet your needs. And then when I do something extra that delights you, something that goes above and beyond what you're you're paying me, that shows or at least creates meaning in the customer's mind. They care about because they didn't have to do that. And then when you stand for something that they also believe in, that shows that they are like. And so when you think about those three meanings together, if you think about a person in your life, you met a person and after talking to them for a bit, you realize, man, this person really gets me. They really get me. And they really seem to care about. And on top of that, they really care about some of the things, same things that I also care passionately about. That's probably somebody you'd want in your life. That's probably somebody that you could see yourself having, whether it's a friend or a romantic relationship. And so this combination of meetings is very powerful. So I think marketers and people doing product development and customer experience development need to always be thinking, how do I create these three meanings? Because that's the alchemy that that creates I think that's fantastic. I think, you know, you have to give a client like, there's a saying that like humans have two primary needs, the need for certainty, which is juxtaposed with the need for variety. And the first two are exactly what you're saying. You need to be certain that you're delivering what you say you're going to do, right? Nike needs to deliver good athletic products. They can't be crappy products. That would break number one. But then they also every once in a while need to go above and beyond, do something unique that isn't what's expected, right? To delight. I love the term delight. I think that's so cool. Um, and then give something bigger than the brand and the person that, that everyone can rally behind, whether that's creativity or passion. I, phenomenal. Really, really cool. In an age where so many businesses, even from brick and mortar and physical products, are now have a digital component, right? Like what is getting lost in the age of digital that brands really need to be paying attention to um, so that they can you know, continue to win customers? There might not be anything getting wrong. I think a lot of people would potentially say, well, is there an element of human connection that's wrong? I think that would be the logical theory. Say, but but you know, let me ask you, do you feel when you interact with Amazon, do you have this kind of nagging feeling like, you know, Amazon is great because they have all the stuff I want and the reviews and I can order stuff and it comes around today, but I just don't feel I have a sense of human connection. Personally, I don't. I don't have that feeling. And so I think the, the, the harsh truth is that in terms of interacting with brands, in a large percentage of cases, and this is not universally true for every situation, every industry, and every type of interaction, but in a large percentage of cases, people care a lot less about human interaction than you might think or want to be. And the value of human interaction by a brand really is mostly to do with the degree to which it fulfills those needs we talked about before. Yep. So in some cases, if I go to Nordstrom and I meet, have a person who helps me shop and everything, 
I value that human interaction. Absolutely. But not because human interaction, because it's meeting some needs. Like I need advice about what to buy. I need reassurance that I've got the right products, right? But what, what the leading digital brands have shown in many cases, you know, I can get that from a great digital experience as well. I mean, even look at something like Uber, which is enabling a relatively human centric experience, right? A guy pulls up in a car, I get in, I'm, I'm interacting or I'm at least being served by a human not a digital experience. And yet Uber enables me to not have to talk to that person and not worry whether they know where I'm going and everything, not have to pay them. Right. I can literally get in the car and say, Hey, and other than that, and I could, and if, if I don't say, Hey, then he might not give me a good rating. So I have to say, Hey, you know, <laughs> sure. but other than that, you know, and, and for most people, I don't think, I don't hear many people bemoaning that. I don't hear many people saying, man, you know, I, I wish I, I like the old days where I had to interact with the driver. Right. Um, so I think I think um, really well crafted digital experiences don't inherently have to lose anything compared to in person experiences, and they gain a lot. They can gain efficiency, for example. They can gain scalability and cost effectiveness. So. Yeah, that's fascinating. So why do many great products fail? I look at that two ways. Um, one thing I often say, and I talk about in the book, is there's actually only one reason products fail, and that is the unforeseen. If you knew the product was going to fail, you wouldn't have gone down that road or you would have changed your plan. So the first thing is the people who created the product, they failed to understand something that was going to make that product not work. And so what is it? What might they have failed to understand? Well, usually there's three possible key problems that cause a product to fail. And all of them fall into that overarching thing of the unforeseen. The first is they failed to understand what the customer really needed. So they created a product just didn't fill a need. My daughter came home a week or so ago from five below, you know, five below. So everything's under five dollars. So she came home with a Bluetooth speaker that was also a shower scrub brush. So it was waterproof, Bluetooth speaker, and scrub brush. Now, I have no idea where this sort of brainchild came from. But I'm guessing that the original price point intended for this product was not under $5. And that the way it wound up at five below was because somebody dumped that. But you got to ask yourself, what consumer out there was taking a shower and going, you know, I have a Bluetooth speaker that's waterproof because there's many of them. And I have a scrub brush, but gosh, I really wish these things were combined. That would be such a great product, you know? Um, It's just not meeting any need. And a lot of products do that in, in, in different ways. They fail to really connect with something that consumers with. So that's the first reason. And then the second reason is failure of execution. Sometimes you have the right idea, like the Galaxy Note 7, right? Fantastic product. Consumers pre-ordered it like crazy. They love the battery life. You know, they love the screens. They love the faster processor, the memory. And it was super expensive. Even still, it was the best-selling launch of a smartphone ever. You know, until the battery started catching up, right? And then, you know, people didn't want it so much. And of course, Samsung had to recall and then cost them not much hundreds of millions of dollars. So, right vision, but you just fail to execute it, right? And there's all kinds, and I go into these in detail in the book and talk about how you can make sure you do the right kind of customer research to make sure you have a product that aligns with consumer needs and how you can do the right kind of planning and cross disciplinary um, visioning to make sure that you've at least done the very best you can to understand all the different implementation possible. And then the last reason, the third and final reason that products fail is lack of awareness. You can have the most fantastic product in the world. I, 
I, I go on a rant in the book, which I won't try to repeat here, about the phrase, if you build a better mousetrap, the world will be the path to your door. Because, I mean, if you think about the mousetraps that most of us buy, that is a crappy product. I'm sorry if I can swear on your podcast. Crappy is okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, you snap your finger in it. Uh, you have to put cheese or something, and it gets tracks bugs. And then, even when it's successful, you've got like a like a dying, you know, a, a writhing mouse that you've got to deal with. This is not a good product. And there have been thousands of patents for other approaches to mouse traps, and yet somehow none of them are any better. I don't believe it. What I do believe is that none of them have broken through to awareness, or at least very few. And so this same old product that people are aware of is the one that's successful. So I think, you know, making sure that that you've done the right, you've taken the right steps to make sure the world knows about your product. I think a lot. And what's great in the digital age, it used to be that you had to go convince a major retail chain to carry your product or something like that in order to really get any visibility. Now, with GoFundMe and Kickstarter and eBay and Etsy and Amazon Marketplace and all these kinds, and then marketing yourself on Instagram and TikTok and all these kinds of places, you can bring a product to market without needing the approval of the powers that be. And I think that's so wonderful and powerful in a way that digital is really enabling so many more great products that to get that level of awareness. But it still requires that you have a strategy to use those tools to make that happen. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think uh, that's one of the greatest things about the digital era is the ability to rapidly test and get real consumer feedback with a a much shorter timeline and a much lower cost um, and without having to rely on other other people. It's amazing. The ability that we have to get real consumer feedback and and what would you actually buy this instead of like a think group or a study group or a focus yeah. group. Um, we've got a, a couple of minutes here as we wrap up. To me, uh, Howard, running a business, being an entrepreneur, all of these things is a is not worth it if we don't also get to live the life we dream of. What is one item on your personal bucket list that you're going to accomplish in the next 12 months? Well, you know, at this point, it's going to sound like a funny ambition, but maybe go away on vacation. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't used to sound so crazy. Is there a dream location? You know, um, someplace warm in the... Someplace I can scuba dive. Um, You know, I, I love to scuba dive. and Two of my daughters are certified, so... Hopefully we can, whether it's just nearby in the Caribbean or Florida, or we actually get someplace like, I'd love to go to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, which I've never actually been to. Um, so something like that, go away someplace warm, where we can scuba dive and get this whole COVID year and a half. Yeah, I'm ready, ready to move forward for sure. Uh, thank you so much for coming out on the show. All of my biz ninjas, wherever you're listening, like... First, before we sign off, please go to winningdigitalcustomers.com. Um, check out the the book. Check you can get a free chapter there. Uh, you can learn more about what Howard and his team are doing at From Dot Digital, uh, and check out his podcast, Winning Digital Customers, as well. Wherever you listen to those, or wherever you're listening to me, uh, and now it is your turn to go out and do something. Thank you for tuning in to Biz Ninja Entrepreneur Radio. What you didn't hear was one more very important question that Tyler asks each guest. If you want to be a fly on the wall when the real secrets are shared, go to bizninja.com slash VIP and get your access today. Remember to subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And our one last favor, if this episode was meaningful to you, please share this podcast with a fellow entrepreneur so they can grow along with us. Biz Ninjas, it's your turn to go out and do something.